The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Bethlehem can be found at hopeingod.org. I feel so privileged week after week to be your pastor and to get to know some of you every week in fuller measure. And what we find is when we hear these stories, we find that there is a full spectrum of stories here at Bethlehem. No one sounds exactly the same. So some were raised in Christian homes. Some were raised in nominal homes. Some were raised in anti-Christian homes where you're taught not to trust Jesus against him. Some of you were raised with two parents and multiple children, multiple siblings. Some of you were raised by, as an only child. Some of you were raised in broken homes, single parents, divorced. Some of you have really warm childhood memories. Some of you have normal, nominal, ho-hum memories. Some of you are haunted by your childhood memories. This is across the spectrum. And even everyone's experience here at Bethlehem is different. Some of you have been here for a few decades. Some of you have been here for a few years. Others have been here for a few weeks. Some of you are Christians that love Christ and are growing in grace, really leaning in to the Bible. Some of you are seeking Christ. You're not leaning away. You're leaning in, wanting to know more. Some of you are just plain skeptical about Christ. And you you haven't leaned out all the way to the point of rejecting it altogether. My point in all of these stories is to say, everyone's welcome here. Whether you're skeptical about Christ, whether you're a seeker of Christ, whether you're a saint in Christ, whether you've been here for weeks or years or decades, we we want this to be a welcoming community. We want this to be a place where Jesus is spoken and all are welcome to hear of him, to learn of him. But the fact that we are all from different backgrounds shouldn't blind us to the beautiful fact that as Christians, we can all have the same story. We can have the same glory story together. Yeah, it might look different at the street level of our stories, but if you zoom out in the Google map of the gospel, you'll see we have the same story. It's an infinitely glorious reality that should unite the church of Christ. And that's what our text says. What, what would our story be that we all if we're Christians following Christ, have in common. Our text says that there is a past, a present, and a future. And we all have them together. The same past, the same present, the same future. The Christian life starts with the past work of Christ and what he accomplished on the cross, purchasing a people, And then we have the same present call of Christ to go out to him outside the camp. And then we have the same future as we're seeking the city to come, the heavenly city. So if that is our story, 
in this text. This story also has a structure. How do those three things relate? Past, present, future. Think of this text as a platform being held up by two great pillars. Really great, really thick, really strong. There is a a past pillar in verse 12 called the cross of Christ. There is a future pillar called the city to come in verse 14. And they're both holding up the way we live out the call of Christ in verse 13. So verse 13 is the main point. This platform of the Christian life, we put these two realities on display. We live a different way because we live based on radically different reasons to live. We have a radically different story, so our life should look different. How do we put this on display? There are going to be people who, when they watch us living differently, are going to say, what is going on? It almost looks like you're living based on a different map. You're going somewhere else. And then we get to display and declare these glorious realities. We share in common the cross of Christ and the city to come. So the main point of this text is a two-word rallying call. It says to us, if you believe in the cross of Christ, if you believe in the city to come, then let's go together to Jesus. You say, let's go, let's go where? Let's go to Jesus. Well, where's he? He's outside the camp. Let's go there together and bear the reproach he endured. Unless you think this sounds like a miserable life, hear it again. Let's go to Jesus. He's there. That's where we find him. So I want to pray because my words cannot present the loveliness of Christ. Can't do it justice. So I pray that God will show us his son. Let's pray. Father, would you now, in this time together, would you put Christ before us in all of his matchless beauty such that our hearts are drawn to him like a tractor beam. We would follow him. We would love him. We would find him not just to be our savior but our satisfier, our supreme treasure. Oh God, speak through your word now by the power of your spirit, draw us to Christ. May he be lifted up and may we be drawn to him. In Jesus' name, amen. So, remember the structure of our text, two pillars, the cross of Christ, the city to come, and then the platform that's holding up called the call of Christ. So let's see those points together. Number one, the first pillar, the past part of our story, verse 12, look at the cross of Christ. Verse 12, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So this tells us three things about what Jesus did. What he did, where he did it, and why he did it. See all those in this one verse. What did he do? He suffered. Jesus suffered. 
He died. He bled on the cross. The Roman cross was a a torture device devised by the Romans to inflict maximum pain, bleed to death, suffocate to death. But it wasn't just meant to be painful. It was also meant to be shameful, to inflict torture and subject someone to shame. And it's right there in the verse. You might say, I don't see shameful. It's because it's the next phrase. He suffered where? Outside the gate. Hebrews stresses not just what he did, but where he did it, outside the city gate. What's the significance of that? Outside the city is where you took the trash. It's where the waste went. And here, as you see in verse 11 right before, the same point is made. The bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So outside the city gate, that's the place that's viewed as the trash heap, as the unclean place, a place of dishonor, the place where you don't want to go. Jesus willingly went there. He went outside the city gate. He bore the reproach of dishonor. He opened himself up to go outside the gate to be massively dishonored, massively beaten, disrespected, taunted, mocked, scorned, killed. He went outside where you take out the trash and he was treated like it. Now why? Jesus also suffered where? Outside the gate. Why? in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So the cross wasn't just painful, wasn't just shameful, it was sacrificial. It was merciful. All those who who were there crucifying him, taking him to the trash heap of the hill of Calvary, they didn't know that they were crucifying the Lord of glory. Why would he be there? What's he doing in a trash heap? Answer, he's winning those. He's purchasing for himself a people for his own possession. This is astounding how it is that he cleanses his people. Watch this. We're talking about the sacrificial substitutionary atonement. I never get tired of preaching this. Give, give me an open Bible with this doctrine. I'm just always ready. So here it is. Let's hear it again. The Bible says that our sins, our rebellion against God has created a separation with God. And God is so pure, so absolutely holy that his eyes are too pure to look upon sin and uncleanness. So we can't get back to God in our sin. So what does God do? Are we hopeless? But God sent his son, and the son of God left the ultimate heavenly camp the camp of heaven of highest honor and came to this place of dishonor so that he could purchase his people, pay the price for their sin so that he has to go to the unclean place in order to cleanse us 
by his blood. He is the sacrificial sacrifice. Like the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament that could never take away sin, he comes to take away sin. Guilty vile and spotless guilty vile were we Spotless lamb of God was he. What happens when you put them together? Full atonement. Can it be? At one with God because of the blood of Christ. That's what we're talking about. Here it is. We, we sing about this. Bearing shame and scoffing rude in my place. Condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a savior. So, what happens for Christians when we look at this? Do we view the cross as a place of dishonor? As a trash heap? We hold it in highest honor. The place where all the mocking took place for us? We can't scorn the place where we were saved. It becomes a place of honor, the place of praise. We lift it up. We've been singing about it because that's where we were saved. That's where our sins were taken away. What a wonder it is that Christ came to the unclean place and that's where unclean sinners are washed whiter than snow. We can't scorn that place where we were cleansed, where we were washed. We no longer regard it as unclean. So what does that do to anyone that sees their sins washed away there? That sees what he did, where he did it, why he did it, is going to lead to a different kind of life. That's why he moves right away in verse 13 to our present call, the call of Christ. Verse 13, therefore, Therefore, everyone that's seen what he did, where he did it, and why he did it, therefore, let's go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. So there's three things that we're told to do in this verse. What? Go out to him. Where? Outside the camp. What will we find there? We'll bear the reproach he endured. So we go out to Jesus, which sounds good. Any lover of Jesus, that's where you want to be, with Jesus. But then you say, well, where is he? He's outside the camp. This is where it gets hard. Outside the camp is the place the trash goes. Nobody keeps their dumpster inside the house. You take the trash out. The camp was the place that was clean and safe, regarded highly. Outside the camp, it's going to be treated like trash because that's where you take the trash. And he says this should come as no surprise because if Jesus was treated that way, we're going to be treated that way with him. We go to the place where he met us and we meet him there, we are going to be reproached as well. But we can't help it. If we are united with Christ, we're going to share reproach with Christ. How many of you think of the Christian life as you are trying to surround yourself with comfort, shield yourself from reproach? And what a shock to have Jesus himself 
knock on the door. And you, he comes to the door, you open the door, it's Jesus. What do you do? You want to invite him in. Have a seat with me on the lazy boy. And Jesus says, no, don't invite me into your comfort. I'm going to call you out to me, to obey me in the great commission where I am. Don't invite me into your comfort. I'm going to call you out to my mission. Come out to me. Now, here's the question. That sounds like it's going to be really hard if there's reproach there. If that's not the easy path, if we're not being called to surround ourselves with comfort, can we endure it? Can we endure it? That's where he says, verse 14 now, yes, because it's not going to last, but the rest to come will be forever. Look at point three, this future pillar, the city to come. Verse 14, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Here's where people are going to look at us and they're going to say, it doesn't look like you're pursuing all the things that we're pursuing. It doesn't look like you're seeking the approval like we are of everything else. It, It looks like you're pursuing something that I can't find anywhere on a map of the world. And that's exactly right. We are seeking a city that's not found anywhere on our maps. The city to come. Which means... We can put up with leaving some of these earthly comforts because we can't lose them, ultimately. As Jim Elliott said, you're you're no fool to give up what you can't keep in order to gain what you can't lose. We, as Christians, say to the world, all the things that you're pursuing, you can't keep. You're pursuing after them, thinking that if you can just grab hold of it, that's what's going to satisfy you. But you you can't. Even if you grab it, it can't last. So Christians see the city to come and say, I can let go. I can let go of these things. I can leave them for a little while if I know I can't lose the better city, the lasting one. So here, I just want you to see the same language and logic that occurs again and again in Hebrews. First one, Hebrews chapter 10. Ask yourself, what is this reproach that we could find ourselves enduring? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, so you came to know Christ, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach. There it is. Exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. What do you mean? Describe that. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. So here it is. To be a Christian meant to be reproached, persecuted, treated like trash, And the the question was, okay, some are thrown in prison. Now, do I, if I'm not, do I identify with them and risk losing my property, my possessions? And this says, you did that. But notice this crazy word. He said, you did it joyfully. 
You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. What, what would cause anybody to be crazy like that? Answer, verse 35, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. It's the same future pillar holding up this platform that when somebody takes away your home, they see joy. And it's like we have no reason to be believed if we can be explained. You cannot explain that in that moment. Like, you're happy that I did this? How how can you not be devastated? And the answer is, I got something better. I got something lasting. You can't take away my joy because you can't take away my city. You can't take away my Savior. You can't take away my home. There's so much about my life you can't touch. You can't take away my joy. You can't touch my Savior. You can't touch my future city. Moth can't destroy. Thief can't steal. Nobody can touch. That's a different story than what the rest of the world is living. So, notice that God is not calling us to get good at saying no to stuff. Be really good self-deniers, really good duty-driven Christians. He's calling us to see really well what he has for us that's better and lasts forever and say yes to that, which enables us to say no to lesser things that don't last. Same thing's true in Hebrews 11. As you look at the Old Testament saints, they lived this story. Abraham, he lived in tents, not a mansion in the promised land because he was seeking the city whose builder and maker is God. If God designs it and builds it, it's going to be better than whatever you're living in right now. Moses was able to not rest in being called son of Pharaoh's daughter, place of honor. Instead, he accepted the reproach with the Messiah and the people of God in slavery, dishonored, treated like trash. Why? He regarded the reproaches of Christ far greater wealth than anything Egypt had to offer. Why? He was looking to the future reward. But there's something way better than any of those examples, and it comes in Hebrews chapter 12. This is my favorite one. Jesus is not only the object of our faith, He's the model for our faith. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Was this true for him? Who for the joy that was set before him, hear the future pillar holding this up? He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So here he is, the model of faith. He left the ultimate camp, the highest heavenly honor place came to be dishonored. Why? Why could he open himself up to such shame and scorn? It's because he looked ahead and he said, I'm going to leave heaven, but I can't lose it. I'm going to come back. I'm going to be seated at the highest place. I'm going to be on that cross, in that tomb, and then at that right hand, but I'm not coming back empty-handed. This time, I'm bringing many sons and daughters to glory. That's why I'm going. 
That's why I'm taking on the scorn and the shame, which enables him to come and not run from reproach like we all want to in being self-protective. He's able to run towards the reproach, stick his finger in its face and say, you are not keeping me away, shame. I despise you. I defy you from keeping me from saving my people. I'm not going to run from you. I'm going to run towards you. I'm going to open myself up to you. I'm going to say, come closer. Yeah, taunting, taunting, mocking, beating, pull out the beard, put on the crown of thorns, more, closer, come here. And in the death grip, he brings it in and shatters shame so that there's no shame for the people of God to bear everlastingly. He does that so that we could not ever feel shame in God's presence clothing us with his righteousness so that we would have a heavenly home. Jesus is not ashamed to call us his family. That's what he did. So why on earth would we run from reproach if that means running away from Jesus? He did this for us so that we could see God's not ashamed to open heaven's doors to us. So I'm, I'm ready to apply this. I hope you are. How do we apply a crazy life like this? I want to think first through the four aspects that we've been talking about with our 25 by 25 vision. If you've been at Bethlehem for any length of time now, you should be able to name all four of them. By 2025, our gospel ambition is to plant 25 new churches It's to engage 25 unengaged peoples, people groups with the gospel. It would be to, in 25 months, the next 25 months, build a permanent South Campus facility. And it would be, number four, to strengthen the core of Bethlehem, diving deeper than ever into our priorities. So if you just take those one at a time, number one, 25 by 25 reminds us that God is going to call some of us going outside the camp is going to mean going outside the camp of Bethlehem. And maybe what feels safe and secure and known to go do a church plant for the sake of the advance of the gospel. You're going to hear Pastor Kenny preach about that next week. Number two, Going outside the camp, when we look about at 25 people groups that have no access to the gospel and aren't even being targeted by anyone to bring them the gospel, it might mean we don't just leave the camp of Bethlehem, but the camp of America, of all that's familiar here and the comforts that are here. And go someplace really hard because you believe Jesus is going to be there. If Jesus is calling you to there, he's going to be there with you. So maybe you leave the camp of America. Or number three, how are we in the next 25 months going to build a permanent facility for the South Campus? It might mean some of us are called to leave the camp of financial security and margin and everything that feels good about taking security and money got enough, got a big enough margin. It might mean sacrificially giving 
so that downtown and north don't sit in our comfortable, permanent facility and say, too bad, South, and look right at you, South Campus. We want to say, we're in this with you together, that they would have what we have right here, downtown campus, what we have north campus. So what we're saying, even in that, there's so much going on right now that we haven't had time to just debrief about as a family. So come to the Corley Strategy Meeting Sunday night. Find out about how we prayed that God would give us 38 million. It looks like he gave us about 23 million and we're actually excited about that. How could something crazy like that be true? You have to come and find out. Or how could we be praying that, that 13 million for a South Campus building and now the, the, the building committee has come up with a, a plan for a $7 million building about and how could we actually be excited about that creative building plan? Well, we have to come and find out. God is on the move here. We want as a family to be part of this. Or the fourth thing, 25 by 25, strengthening the core to dig deep into Bethlehem's priorities You're going to hear two more sermons about that at the end of February. So first sermon in February, Kenny Stokes on church planning. Second sermon in February, Ryan Corbett, one of our global partners on the unreached and unengaged. Last two sermons in February, campus-specific on strengthening the core. This sermon is on small groups. What does it mean to go outside the camp in order to do small groups? We say it's our second highest priority corporately after corporate worship? What is it? How do we do it together like this text says? Here's my question. Small groups, are they inward focus for us or are they outward focus for them? Are they community groups inward or are they missional groups outward? And the answer is yes. How? Look at the inward focus for small groups. According to this text, what do we do in small groups? If we are going to find ourselves as Christians treated like trash, talked about like trash, trash talked, then we should be able to come into small groups and find our acceptance in Christ is reinforced by the family of Christ. Is this a place where you come and you're built up? There's family talk happening here. You're treated differently than you are perhaps in the world. Don't we come together in small groups and remind ourselves, we know what the world is saying about us. What does the cross say to us? Are we reinforcing that? Just think about this. The cross is both the greatest condemnation of us and brings the greatest word of affirmation for us. The greatest condemnation and the greatest affirmation. How does that work? Think about this. The world may criticize us, but the cross says something far worse about us. The world may say, you've got a moral deficit. The cross says, you're morally bankrupt. The world may say, you know, you got, you, got, you got issues with your house that need repair. 
The cross says to us, this house is condemned and needs the wrecking ball. The world says to us, this car needs to be repaired or needs a tune-up or something. The gospel says to us, it's totaled and it needs to be totally different. The world says to us, maybe you you got this problem and and you need a Band-Aid. The gospel says, no, the wound is way too bad for a Band-Aid. You need a new birth. The world may say you've got a deficit and the gospel says you've got an infinite debt that you can't pay. You're so bad that the only thing that can save you is the death of the infinitely valuable Son of God. I look at that and I, if people want to criticize me, I say, you don't know the half of it, all right? I'm way worse than you think. If you can look in my heart and see all the problems there, you don't know the half of it. The cross, before it brings the word of justification, brings a word of condemnation that says, you're that bad. And then, after tearing us down, It builds us up so high that says you could not be more accepted and more loved in Christ than you are. It doesn't matter what approval you seek from the world. You have so much more. As the God of the universe says, you're mine. You're my son. You're my daughter. You're with me forever this much. Look at the cross and it says this much. I accept you. I love you. I take you in forever. What does the world have that could possibly compare to that? So you don't have to fear its criticism and you don't have to pursue its approval. You have far more both of those in Christ. And we do that together encouraging one another, reminding one another, saying, as we're being reproached, perhaps by the world, saying, are you surprised? Jesus promised. He said if they treated me this way, they'll treat you this way. We challenge each other. Are you really forgetting? Do you expect to be treated better than Jesus? Isn't this what he said would come? Let's hold on together. But it's not just inward focus. I think at Bethlehem, that's been a great focus, but it's also outward focus. It's a springboard for mission, missional living. Here's what I mean. Outward focus, we're not called to insulate ourselves from the world in some safe Christian bubble. It's a real problem at Bethlehem that we could just surround ourselves with the Christian bubble all of our friends are Christians, all the places that we go are Christian, all the things that we read are Christian, and after a while, you have so shielded yourself from reproach, you're not being reproached at all because there's no opportunity for it. Sure, maybe turn on the news and hear what people are saying, but I mean really in your life. Do you have friends that are unbelievers, that are not like you? Aren't we called not just to be disciples, but to be disciples that make disciples? 
And I know that some of them are already in your home, like your children, but not all of them are in your home. And so as you go out and people you work with or people you work out with or people that you eat with, do they know that you're Christian? Are you opening yourself up to reproach, perhaps? So on this road of reproach, I think there's two ditches and I want them to be really clear. The road that I'm calling you to is to speak the truth in love. And the ditches would be to have love and no truth or to speak the truth with no love. One is compromise, one's being contentious. And I'm not calling you to eat either of those. So the one ditch you could try to have love for those around you by totally minimizing the truth, compromising the truth, letting your friends, your unsaved friends, be the Lord of your life and tell you what you can believe. And they say to you, you've got to be like me in order to be liked by me. And I'll tell you if you have a view on something that I don't like and I won't accept you. And we say in that time, in that moment, if I go there to spare myself from your wrath, I'm opening myself up to the wrath of God. And I'm not helping either of us at that point. I'm not going to open myself up to God's wrath by running from your wrath. And people will do that. It'll be like in the movies, like draw a line in the sand and if you cross that line, there's gonna be consequences. Or grabbing for something and like the dog that growls, like don't get too close. Or, or in the movies when you're gonna reach for something and people are shooting, like no, don't, every time you move towards it, shooting to move you away. That's what reproach is doing. And we as Christians say, I'm going to take the bullets, I'm going to take the growling, I'm going to take the consequences, but I can't move away from holding fast to the confession of my hope with confidence in Christ. I can't be moved away from there. So if that means that I'm opening myself up to your anger, so be it. But here's where I'm a little more concerned. I think it's easier to speak the truth without love. Here's my question. Do you give the false impression to unsaved people that they not only have to answer to God's wrath, but your wrath? Are you doing the opposite just like them and saying, unless you're just like me, you won't be liked by me? You gotta believe the same things, you gotta talk the same way, you gotta have the same values. When you get into relationships, do you have any with people that are way different than you? There are some people, this is the kind of reproach we're gonna find, there are some people who hold their views so deeply that they can't separate, if you disagree with me, you're against me. If you disagree with me, that's rejection of me. Let's be real concrete. Views like feminism, views like atheism, homosexuality, transgender. What are you going to do? 
Is distance going to demonize? And you're talking about people out there and their views? Or are they your friends? Do you actually know some? So that when, they're, when people do a, a drive-by shooting with their mouth, bullets towards homosexuals, do you ever stand up and say, you're talking about my friends? I got a name here, somebody I know. Don't talk about them that way. Are they like right here to you? And can they tell that you love them? That you're not against them? Are you speaking the truth in love? Here's what I mean. Let's say that there's people in your life, I hope there are, that have radically different views than you, and they're tempted to say, if you disagree with me, you can't be in relationship with me because you hate me. I try to lovingly turn the tables when I can and say, you know, it sounds like you're disagreeing with me too. So, can you disagree with me and still care about me? And almost always they say yes. Then I'll say, could you believe I'm capable of the same thing? That agreement on this issue isn't a prerequisite for friendship? That you can still be part of my life and not agree with me about everything? And that maybe I could be part of your life and not agree with you about everything? And then can they discern, I mean really, can they discern that you love them and are not against them? Are you able to say, I'm not against you, I want to spend eternity with you. That's how for you I am. In my father's house, Jesus said, there's many rooms. I'm not against you. I want a room next to you. That's what I want for us. I want to be worshiping Jesus together forever. And I know that right now you don't know him. And he's the only way to God, the only way to be saved. It's not my wrath that you need to worry about. I don't have any towards you. It's God's wrath. And the only one that takes it away is Jesus. And I want you to know him so bad. I want to be with you forever. Do they get that sense from you? That heart from you? And and then do you do do things like, I'm not going to eat Potato chips, I'm not going to eat chocolate. I'm not give something up so that every time you see somebody, it's going to be hard Super Bowl weekend, eating chips, you, you've made a vow that says every time I see that, I'm going to pray for them because I care about their souls more than I care about me eating potato chips. I mean love, really love, like that. That's not comfortable, not convenient. And then do you go to people in small groups and say, will you pray for me and hold me accountable? I want to share the gospel this week with my friend. I don't want to wimp out like I've done before. Pray for me. Pray. Do you do that together so that small groups are not only a place where you find acceptance and encouragement but you find accountability and empowerment to go out and make disciples I just want to close with this I'm going to speak very directly to unbelievers for a moment are you tired of running after things like the world's approval or earthly success 
and it just feels just out of reach and you have to keep working for it. Or worse yet, when you finally grab it and find out it doesn't satisfy like you thought. One great Christian said, we're made for him and our hearts are restless until they find rest in him. You won't find rest until you find him. And right now, my heart goes out to you because you're in the worst possible position. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. All you can know right now is his terror. And if you come to Christ and know him, it's totally you're in the best possible position where Jesus says, no one can snatch you out of my Father's hand. Now you don't know the terror of God, but the love of God. You have safety and security in that almighty hand. That's where I want you. Hear from this pulpit. That's where I want you. Come to Jesus. And if you are a believer here, I want to ask you, at Bethlehem, what is a small group? Here's my closing plea to you. When you read Hebrews 13 and Hebrews 12 about going out to Jesus or running the race, do you think of that as an individual? Or do you read it plural like it is? Let us go to him. Let us run the race with endurance. Nobody can run for you. You've got to run, but you're not meant to run alone. What are small groups? I read a story back when I had time to read Sports Illustrated that went like this. There was a cross-country team that was a proverbial powerhouse in California, always had the top runners, would finish first, second, third, and sometimes fourth, fifth, or sixth, always won state. But one year, they broke all the records for attendance, and it wasn't for any of the top runners. It was for the person that always finished last. And the reason is because this kid had an inner ear problem that caused vertigo, which he would start running, and he would lose his balance and then fall. And then he would get up again, and he would run for a while, and then fall and people were watching in the stands in tears at just the perseverance of this kid he just kept going he'd make it to the end of every race never win but he'd always finish and people were just blown away by this now is that what Hebrews 12 is talking about running the race with endurance no way No way. That's not small groups. It's running by yourself. So the last race of the year, all these top runners were getting ready to cross the finish line, finishing first, second, third, fourth. They all stopped to show that they could have won. And then they ran back to the end of the line where this guy was. And they linked arms and they finished the race together. That's small groups right there, where you say, not in this alone, we're running, we're linking arms together, and we're witnessing to people along the way, hey, let's link arms, we're finishing this thing together. But I don't think even that's the picture, because I don't think the Christian life is like a cross-country race. I think it's like a tough mutter, or like a Spartan race, where there's obstacles. That's what Hebrews says. There's all these obstacles around us, weights, sin that, that, that trips us up, 
Tough Mudder, you know what that is, right? There's mud and there's razor wire and there's water and there's electric wires that shock you. But here's the good news. You run as a team. You finish as a team and it doesn't last forever. Nobody would enter those things if it lasted forever. There's a finish line. And the Christian life and what I'm holding out, the stakes are so much higher. The rest is so much better. The reward is so staggering that I'm saying, small groups, let's run this race together. Let's link arms. Let's run to Jesus all the way because we got a map that nobody on this world gets. Let's pray. Father, would you help us? Oh God, would you help us? That we would look to Jesus and that we would run together. That we would not selfishly surround ourselves with comfort, shield ourselves from reproach, hide in a Christian bubble but that we would run together, that we would witness together, link arms together, and believe in all that your cross did and believe in all that awaits us after that finish line. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at hopeingod.org or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.